0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to episode 6 of season 9 of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Uh, Lots of action on social media this week, and mainly it was lots of love for last week's song, Two Gunslingers. Uh, Between Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Threads, the votes came back overwhelmingly gold. 27 of you ranked the song a straight 10 out of 10. Nine people put it in the 7 to 9 range, and two people rated it in the 1 to 6 bracket. Mary Beth Donnelly uh, gave us a peek into her origin story on Facebook, saying, I randomly bought the anthology a few years ago at a CD store when I was just a middling fan. This was the song that stopped me in my tracks and made me want to dig deeper. That says it all. And it's definitely a song that I latched onto the first time I heard this album, and it you know, was immediately added to my playlist and has been on all my playlists since. Uh, Paul Roberts commented, a great petty song. Not sure I rate it as high as you, but nine is good for me. Uh, Enjoyed your dissection and detailed interpretation of the lyrics slash meaning. To be honest, I got the anti-war sentiment, but my takeaway has always been I'm taking control of my life. And this will be a recurring theme throughout the comments here that this song has lots of angles to view it from, and there are all sorts of solid interpretations one can make about the lyrics, which just amplifies the fact that this is a very well-written song. In fact, Jill Lucas, I think it's Jill, not Gil. uh, Jill Lucas made this point, commenting, definite golden 10 for the phrasing alone, just brilliant, and another 10 because you can take this song on so many levels, personal, spiritual, and global. I love that Tom said he liked people to see their own images in his songs or something along those lines. And I couldn't agree more, Jill. At 10 Benches, I assume that's a pun on Ben Montenge, over on Instagram posted, I always heard it as a story of two people who were either made fun of or shunned by others they find each other in those situations and decide to move on to a better place slash group of people. Very much like how I've left toxic relationships and friend groups behind. And this is yet another angle that I hadn't considered and makes just as much sense to me as any of the other ones. Um, I'd mentioned during the episode that my final rating surprised me as I imagined it would probably have been an 8. And on Twitter, Stephen Ursell commented that didn't know it until very recently, but this really is a great song. Powerful and inspirational, but also effortlessly cool, which is not an easy combination to achieve. 9 out of 10, but I expect this will become a 10 out of 10 for me over time. So again, there's this strange quality to this song where it reveals itself to you the more you listen to it. And This is why I think I bumped my rating to put this one at the very top table. It's not just a catchy hook and a fun lyric. It's a song that you can lose yourself in quite easily. Uh, This past weekend, I also picked up a copy of uh, The Last DJ on vinyl. I was down at my local record store, uh, Vinyl Exchange in Saskatoon, if you're interested, shopping for something else, and I was delighted to see that they had one on the rack. Uh, so now I only have songs and music from She's the One, Echo, Highway Companion, and Hypnotic Eye to buy on vinyl. And then I'll have the entire collection. Well, apart from the Mud Crutch and, and whatnot. Um, I do want to pick up an original pressing of Wildflowers too, but I do have the Wildflowers and all the rest box set to keep me going on that front. But I'd posted a picture of me spinning last DJ on my turntable um, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and everywhere. And I tagged in Jim Ladd's accounts. And to my surprise, he liked the post. So maybe I could reach out to him and get him onto the show sometime. That would be pretty darn cool. And for those of you who aren't aware, Jim Ladd is the radio DJ who the last DJ was sort of mostly based on, and is basically the last of the freeform rock DJ still operating in the US, and someone who, like Tom, is a beacon of integrity in an increasingly closed system of a music industry. So today's episode looks at the fifth song from side one of Into the Great Wide Open, The Dark of the Sun. There's a link to the song in the episode notes if you want to listen to it before we dig in, as I don't play clips from the song itself in the episode. And this is to avoid, you know, copyright issues or getting on the wrong side of the Tom Petty Estate, which I I don't want to do. After I'd written, recorded, and published last week's episode covering two gunslingers, I spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of the relationship between those two central characters. It only occurred to me later that they may not have been adversaries at all, but two men-at-arms on the same side, making a unified stand against whatever violence they were being confronted with or exposed to. And in that context, you could almost think of The Dark of the Sun as a continuation and possibly the conclusion of their story. But more on that later. Let's rewind to 2004-2005 when Paul Zolo is interviewing Tom for his seminal book, Conversations with Tom Petty. Tom bemoans to Paul that the Dark of the Sun was never played live. He says, It got lost in the shuffle of that album. There were so many songs on it, I thought it was a good little song. He closes by saying, I haven't heard it in years, but I bet I would like it if I heard it. And Paul suggests that Tom should have Dana, Tom's wife, uh, put the album on for him again sometime, to which Tom recalls that, The last time I heard that album, we were on one of our getaways and The Room had a CD set up, and they have a few CDs which were standard with The Room, Mantovani or Johnny Mathis, and then there was Me, and it was Into the Great Wide Open. When Paul asks, did you enjoy it, Tom says, I remember enjoying The Dark of the Sun. I always get pretty critical, but I was pleasantly surprised. As mentioned, the song was surprisingly never played live. On the tour to support Into the Great Wide Open, the band would typically play six or seven songs from the record, and when you look down the track listing, you do see Tom's point about the heavyweights it was up against. Apart from Two Gunslingers and The Dark of the Sun, all the other tracks on Side 1 were released as singles in various markets. And in a burgeoning set of killer live tracks, you can see how it would have been hard to slide either of those songs into the lineup. I mean, what do you take out? Refugee? American Girl? Running Down a Dream? If Tom had stopped recording after Full Moon Fever, say, and toured just the hits from the albums up to that point, he would still have had a set list that would have disappointed people simply because he couldn't fit their favorite song into the set list every night. When the song starts, you could absolutely be forgiven for thinking, hang on, we've heard this before, haven't we? The opening bar of this one sounds almost identical to the opening of King's Highway. Same key, same immediate opening with the whole band coming in on the one. The only slight difference is the tempo, which is around 133 beats per minute on King's Highway and around 138 on this song, so not a huge difference. We also get a similar bright guitar lead tone that leads to a very, very simple chord progression, this time for eight bars in the intro instead of four, but it feels familiar. It feels like this album. Again, we have at least three guitar parts with the acoustic strumming out the progression and an electric rhythm part that accentuates the changes and adds in some additional fill notes here and there. And if I had to guess, and hey, it's my podcast, so guess I shall, I'd say there's also a 12-strung acoustic mix a little lower, you know, really panning out that sound. And of course, over the top of this dense wall of guitars, you get Mike Campbell's beautiful lead part. After 8 bars of this intro, we get the familiar drop out of the lead guitar, while those rhythm guitars continue their lush, laid accompaniment to the track. We get a similar bass cadence to two gunslingers, that one-one-two pattern, boom, 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 it's that pattern, and Stan Lynch is simply keeping that driving backbeat pushing the song forward. It all feels pretty safe and familiar to this point. The chord progression is one of those seesaw fares that goes from the root G down to the 5th, which is C, to the major 4th, which is D, back to the major 5th, and then finally back to that root. And the bass line under this is playing those root G, C, D, C notes twice through in this first verse, but then adds in a nice little twist by stepping down from the G to F sharp to E to F sharp to G on, uh, on, on the line, give me hope, give me comfort. So if you listen for that there, there's just a little step down that changes that dynamic just a wee bit. And it just adds a little bit of color leading into the last four bars of the verse, which drop back to C again before coming up to D. The last two changes over two bars are followed by a four-bar repeat of the main chord progression. So the verse has either 14 bars or 18 bars, depending on how you want to treat that last four-bar transition part. In that four bars that transition into the next verse, you can hear the lead part again that Mike plays in the intro, but it's bounced between the left and right channels. It kind of sounds a little bit like a call and response between two different guitar parts on those channels. It's also not brought up in the mix, so it just swims about in those layers of guitar. The lead guitars on this track sound as much like the Birds as anything The Heartbreakers has ever recorded, and we're going to talk about that, especially in the solo section, but the rest of the guitars are just this beautifully balanced stew of acoustic and electrics playing the chord progressions in different inversions to get this richness of tone that fills out the whole sonic spectrum. The second verse is basically a carbon copy of the first musically until those last four bars, where we hold the C for two bars and then the D for two bars to build into the chorus, where we get that big, hey, yeah, yeah. Ending on the first beat of the first bar of that B section, the chorus, our B section. Uh, there's a nice change here to the rhythm of the song also, as we come off the straight back beat with that quick E minor, D, G descending progression. Dun, dun, dun. That one, you know the one I'm talking about? A bit, bit of singing for you, there you go. So that, that starts on the second beat of the bar rather than the first. And I've used the phrase push before, and it's the main motif of the chorus. So again, because that chord change doesn't come in exactly where you'd expect it and the bass plays its notes on the 2, 3, and the 4-and, if you remember 1-and, 2-and, 3-and, 4-and, you get this sense of the rhythm being pushed. Now, a push actually comes ahead of the beat, and this is coming behind the beat, so very technically it's a pull rather than a push, but the effect is the same, and if you talk about a push to any musician, they'd know exactly which part of the song you're talking about. The bass and that 3-chord change follow that push timing, but Stan Lynch doesn't exactly. And quite often, especially in rock songs, it's the drums that do that pushing. But here the snare stays exactly on the twos and fours and the kick stays on the ones and threes, but adds a kick on the two before pushing on the four and again into the next bar. So you do get a backbeat with just a slight little hitch step right at the end. Stan also switches from the hi-hat to the cowbell, played straight through on each beat of each bar. And it kind of sounds like it's dropping out here and there in places, but I think that's just the, I think it's just getting just a wee bit lost in that treble range because there are other notes that are overlapping it. But it's a nice little change up to just give this chorus section a different feel and mood. The addition of that E minor at the top of the progression also gives the section a momentary, darker feeling. It's the dark in the dark of the sun. But this isn't a dark song, so it resolves down always to that G major root. The last addition in the chorus is the harmony vocals on the stand of We Will Stand Together. After the line We Will Stand Together, we get a slight alteration to that three-chord progression, which changes instead of being E minor D, G, it changes to C, E minor, D, before then eventually returning back down to G. And the chorus ends with that four bar core chord progression with some harmonized oohs and Tom repeating the line in the dark of the sun with again that last word landing on the first beat of the next bar, which is when Mike Campbell's fantastic guitar solo comes in. Now, I don't know if you're sick of me banging on and on about how much I love Mike Campbell, but come on, if you don't love this guy, how can you really be a Tom Penny and the Heartbreakers fan? The notes he chooses and those slides he uses remind me so much of George Harrison, but it sounds tonally like Roger McGuinn. I was trying to remember which song specifically it was that Mike reminds me of here, and I figured it out. It's the Beatles cover of Buddy Holly's Words of Love. <laughs> ¶¶ Dave, if you listen to that, the phrasing that Mike is using on the slides in this solo just really has that same feeling. He's moving his hands slowly into the different positions so you can really hear the frets sounding out the interval notes between. And I just love that so much. I also wasn't sure at first whether he was playing both notes at the same time on those on those bottom two strings or whether it was, you know, double tracked and it was two different uh, guitar parts. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the latter though and I've run this by my my good friend Randy Woods and he says definitely it's two um, two guitar parts. And, you know, if you listen to it, the the notes seem to be accentuated more than they would be if he was playing it at the same time. And also, those bends would be near impossible to play that accurately. So I think we're we're pretty positive it's double-tracked, at least in that initial section. And hey, you know what? If I ever get to speak to Mike Campbell, it's something I can maybe talk to him about. Because, you know what? I've never seen this solo played. Because there's no live version of it. My favorite part of this solo, though, is when it moves that E minor chord at the 147 mark. And Mike starts that absolutely beautiful sort of it's almost a syncopated downward arpeggio where he comes, he sort of plays the primary note first, and then there's sort of the, the sympathetic note, the second note second, but then he inverts that and does it the other way around, and it's just, it's just beautiful. Um, it's one of those musical moments that just fills up my heart with joy, which might sound stupid, but music does that to me quite often. And you know what? We get a little trademark heartbreakers turnaround around again here. As the solo goes on, one bar more than you would expect with Mike double-timing that final descending run so cleanly. It's just another note-perfect part of the song, and you have to think everyone was pretty pleased with it when Mike did it. Okay, folks, it's time for some Petty Trivia. Your question from last week was this. In which of the following states did the Heartbreakers play the most often? Was it A, Indiana, B, Ohio, C, Michigan, or D, Georgia? Now, first of all, I think I should probably have clarified that I wasn't asking which state Tom played the most gigs in of all the shows he played, because that would have been California, unsurprisingly. But of the four options I gave you, the Heartbreakers played Indiana, 27 times between their first gig there in 1978 and their last in 2017. The Heartbreakers first played Georgia on the 30th November 1976, which according to Setlist FM, was only their fourth ever gig, and returned to the Peach State a further 22 times for a total of 23. In Michigan, the band played the Pine Knob Theatre in Clarkston 13 times and a total of 18 times in venues in other cities for a grand Michigan total of 31. And this means with a total of 52 shows, the answer is Ohio. I didn't pronounce that right, did I? Ohio? Ohio? I'm going with it. And if setlist.fm is correct, the Buckeye State first welcomed the Heartbreakers on July 19th, 1976, three years and nine days after I was born. As far as I can see, the band returned to Ohio every time they went on tour and had a soft spot for the Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls. I don't know how to pronounce this. Um, where they played nine times. Okay, moving away from geography, your question for this week is this. In 1980, Into the Great Wide Open producer Jeff Lynn with his band Electric Light Orchestra wrote and recorded the songs on side two of the worldwide hit album Xanadu. But which female star, who has a tangential link back to Tom, sang all the songs on side one? Was it A, Stevie Nicks, B, Annie Lennox, C, Olivia Newton-John, or D, Debbie Harry. Okay, back to the song. Mike's solo leads straight into the last verse, with Tom coming in over the top and landing the word days on the first beat of the bar, as he has done in each of the previous two verses. The only difference in this verse is that we get those oohs that we heard leading into the chorus at the start of the second half of this verse, when Tom sings, Would I sail into the heavens? The following chorus adds more vocal harmonies and a call and response on the line, Dark of the Sun. And the outro plays a couple of nice little tricks here, with the the first pass through the chorus ending on, We will stand as one, before the, Hey, yeah, yeah, brings us straight back into the chorus once more, where we land on, In the Dark of the Sun, as expected. Then in the tail, we get um, some more of those melodic sliding guitar licks and Tom throwing in a hey, yeah, yeah, out of place, which doesn't lead back into the chorus, before the song ends on that E minor, D, G push. Now, there's a distinct lack of Ben Montenche on this song, and I think my brain was playing tricks on me earlier, and I, I kind of I thought there was a synth part that I heard earlier in the song, but I listened to it through again a few more times. I just don't think it is. Um, and really, why would you need them? Jeff Lynn's penchant for caring more about the song than the band maybe came to bear here but I'm sure Ben Montt would have found exactly the right complementary part to play live had they ever done it. You know, maybe some tasteful restrained piano would have worked, or maybe just an organ backing, I don't know. But I just, I don't know that this song really does need keyboards in this instance, so I think maybe omitting them just might have been the right idea. And like Two Gunslingers, you could absolutely imagine this song being really good in a stripped-back sort of halftime arrangement the same way that they used to do Two Gunslingers. Vocally, this one basically mirrors the style that Tom has used on the previous two tracks, Into the Great Wide Open and Two Gunslingers where he's sitting in that very natural mid-range, until it gets to those hey, yeah, yeah parts when he cracks that vocal a little, just to give that a slightly more plaintive texture to match that E minor chord. There are a couple of nice little Thomisms in here too, of course. Um, the way he sings Saw You Sail at the start of the second verse, you almost hear him really open up his vocal, but he's just teasing as he drops back down to that comfortable mid-range. Then there's that little bendy does on the word never in the line I had never known before. We've talked before about how much attention, though, he paid to every single syllable he ever sang. And this song's a great exercise in vocal restraint and picking your moments to just add in a little color. And the last little Tom thing is that drawl on In My Eyes, which basically becomes one word as Tom takes advantage of the soft consonant. Beautifully done. So, onto the lyrics. I mentioned right at the top that, if you're of a mind, maybe this is the follow-up to Two Gunslingers in more than just album sequencing. Where that song is about taking back control over one's destiny against a backdrop of violence and oppression, this song is about finding another person to complete oneself and become part of a greater whole. Could that have a spiritual connotation? Sure. Could it really be a simple love song written to show someone that you'll be together forever? Absolutely. But as with two gunslingers, I think this is a lyric that you can approach from any number of angles. Heck, if we allow the premise that the gunslingers were bonded by trauma in the first song after they went riding out of town, Maybe they fell in love with one another and peace became what bonded them in this song. The lyrics in this one are again, I think, deliberately vague. Kind of like, you know, things you see in your peripheral vision or a dream that you can only half remember on waking. There are unambiguous exhortations or declarations like give me hope, give me comfort, or we will stand together. But then there are much more nebulous lines like in your eyes there was a freedom I had never known before or would I sail into the heavens constellations in my eyes. These are more feelings than actions, more ideas than gestures. We do have a clever callback in the Constellations in My Eyes line in the last verse, which obviously references Orion's sword in the second verse. Saw you sail across a river underneath Orion's sword. There's such a tranquility that you get from the idea of water and sky, isn't there? Orion's sword, of course, is part of the Orion constellation. And when Paul Zolo mentions this line to Tom in conversations, Tom says, Orion is one of the few that I can easily pick out when I look up there. That was another song that came from a staring at the sky kind of thing, which leads us into the title line in the song, The Dark of the Sun. It's such a clever inversion on what we all know the sun to be. But what does it mean? An eclipse would be a darkening of the sun. Is the dark of the sun in reference to the singer feeling that the connection they have with this other person is so bright that the sun becomes darker by comparison? Is it Tom playfully subverting the idea of the dark side of the moon? Does it matter? I don't think it does. And I don't know whether it actually meant anything to Tom when he wrote it, but it's an impactful line exactly because of the juxtaposition between the words dark and sun. Light and shade. Hope and despair. Violence and love. Maybe it's just two gunslingers finally finding peace. <laughs> Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. The Dark of the Sun is another one of those songs that I sometimes forget about, and when I hear it, I think, man, that's a good song. And then when I hear Mike's solo, I think, man, that's a really great song. It's slick, it's short, and it's an upbeat ray of sunshine. It's a song that I do believe was sequenced after two gunslingers very deliberately, and though my idea of them being connected narratively is a product of me recognizing patterns that almost certainly aren't there, I think those two songs sit so wonderfully together on side one of this album and provide a different dynamic to everything else that's there. I don't think this one is quite as strong as Two Gunslingers, but Mike Campbell's guitar solo alone and that great push into the chorus make it worth listening to again and again. So I'm going to give The Dark Side of the Sun a confident and solid 8 out of 10. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet, as I'm sure you'll find a podcast there that you'll enjoy listening to. You can also find my other podcasts, uh, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my best friend Randy Woods, Um, as well as the ultimate catalog clash that I co-host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, threads, and YouTube at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe as applicable. Please leave a rating if you haven't done that already. Um, And keep talking to me on social media. I'm enjoying reading out some of your comments. As a weekly reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit all the official streaming platforms or go to your local independent reseller Go grab a record, go grab a CD, go grab a T-shirt, go give money to people who need it. Don't give any more money to Jeff Bezos. He does not need any more of our money. Um, if you're looking for merchandise, official merchandise, go to TomPetty.com. And if you're looking for merchandise for this podcast, please go to tompettyproject.com. As a last note, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebooks, Facebooks, Facebook. Um, if you're not already a member because they're yeah, good fan communities and they're well worth hanging out. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week with the last track from side one of Into the Great Wide Open. We're going to be talking about Mike Campbell again. It's all or nothing. Bye-bye.